Welcome fellow survivors to another episode of A Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. Last week we dealt with a gang of electricity-powered marauding cyborg who were killed using an EMP weapon found in the train's basement, and I was really hoping for something a little less strenuous this week. As if the gang wasn't bad enough, the captain's reluctance to use the aforementioned weapon has raised some awkward questions about where her loyalties lie. The tension has permeated the entire train. The soldiers, normally the most strident supporters of the captain, feel, felt like their lives had been thrown away needlessly. The train's crew complained about who they were really working for, and the ragtag collection of adventurers, soldiers of fortune, and mysteriously dangerous individuals weren't quite sure what to think, but were of the distinct impression they were on the losing end of something. And what of me? Quite frankly, I felt betrayed. There were a few things I'm willing to fight for, and incidentally, none that I'm willing to die for. But apparently, I am loyal to the central government authority. Those benevolent bureaucrats who have provided me with food, shelter, and when deemed necessary by a physician, extremely powerful painkillers, and in exchange have only asked for payment of reasonable taxes and a vague commitment to try not to hurt your fellow humans. They're the good guys, and I want to be one of the good guys. The mood on the train was tense when word reached me of a curious development. We would be travelling to my hometown of Haverton, or at least through it anyway. We were in the northeast of England, and the captain wanted to travel up, the, up to the border of Scotland before heading down the western side of England, and Haverton lay on that route. As I have mentioned before, I am one of the few English people on board. To some of the others, England is a mysterious, even exotic place, but I still see it as a rain-sodden island of mild eccentrics and equally polite people. While I didn't want to speak to the captain and ask her to stop the train at Haverton, I managed to call in a few favours and the engineers told me the train would stop for a maintenance check there, providing the area seemed safe of course. My memories of Haverton are rather vague and will have already been altered by several decades of living outside of England. Perhaps what I remember is a complete fabrication. We shall see. Haverton was a small and insignificant English town, a place of no particular importance. Its biggest claim to fame was a supposed magic spring which came into existence suddenly in the early years of the 5th century, just after the Romans had left. The legend being that water from the spring could heal injuries and cure illnesses, and its water was said to have healed many from lowly peasants to kings of England. The town claimed its water had been used by everyone from Harold Godwinson to Sir Isaac Newton. England is a country with a lot of history and many small places have such fantastic tales, but I always admired Haverton for having such an over-the-top and obviously fictitious story, as if you're going to make something up, you might as well go big. Naturally, by the 20th century, no one believed the story of the magical properties of the local spring, what with modern medicine being far more reliable, but people still enjoyed telling the story. It was a dull place, all told, but I've seen many interesting places that have nearly killed me, so dull isn't so bad. I remember a few places, the local church, not that we were religious, but it was at the centre of the town, the bridge, some of the local parks, and the house where me and my family lived. It was a small, cosy building, and I have fond memories of it. I doubted it had survived. The area around Haverton had been devastated by the huge monsters that had risen from the sea and laid waste to the coastal regions. While hugely destructive, these creatures are such big targets they are relatively easy to kill from a modern military perspective, and no more of these monsters exist in the mainland. 
although there are reports of these monsters being spotted in seas across the world. In the years since these monsters were dealt with, I cannot really say what has happened in Haverton, but I doubt it was anything good. As we approached the town, I was anxious and wondered what ghosts being back home could raise in my mind. It was a safe assumption that of all the people who had lived there at the start of the apocalypse, I was the only one still alive, which was an unsettling thought. Since the attack by Cartwright's gang and the captain's perhaps treacherous behaviour, Sophia had really left my side for more than a few minutes, and I never saw her without her weapons. Sophia was increasingly distrustful of the captain and other figures of, of authority on the train, and was convinced malign forces were ranging themselves against me. Naturally, Sophia had insisted on coming with me to Haverton. That wasn't the only negative outcome from her encounter with Cartwright's gang. She had been injured by Anders, breaking her wrist when she threw her against the train. Hence, her forearm was covered in plaster. Sophia's proximity also meant I had seen little of Colt. The two had never gotten along, but since Colt had shot the retreating Anders, she had become outright hostile. In fairness, it had bothered me too. Colt was trigger happy, but he didn't shoot people in the back. Anders had been close to death and had been taken to the medical bay, who found themselves overrun with patients from the battle. Apparently, Anders' condition was stable, but no one had been allowed to see her, and many people were eager to get a glimpse of this woman who by her own admission contained mechanical clockwork implants. Certainly I had seen her move with astonishing speed and grace, beyond what seemed possible. She had caught a bullet. Admittedly, the bullet had smashed through her hand, but it was still impressive. Sophia and I were the only people to leave the train when it stopped. After all, to everyone else, the place was of no significance. A few walked onto the platform and stretched their legs, but that was it. We walked from the small station and I quickly realised that yes, most of the town was severely damaged. The church had been obliterated, the parks resembled no man's land, but the bridge was still standing, more or less. I was dubious about trusting the damaged bridge to carry me safely across the water, but both me and Sophia made it across without incident. As we made it to the other side, there was an odd shuffling sound, one that I recognised, but Sophia had never heard before zombies. It was the sound of a large group of slow-moving creatures with poor motor control shambling forward with the occasional zombie groan when they thought they saw something alive. These were the first zombies we had found in England. Of course, in France, Germany and much of continental Europe, they were the single biggest problem from the apocalypse. I have seen hordes thousands strong, but even they were nothing compared to the giant hordes made up of literally millions of the undead that slowly moved across Asia. I tried to pull Sophia back across the bridge and hissed the word zombies, but she was too curious and wanted to see them for herself. Her automatic pistol was in her hand as she kept moving forward. And then I saw them, 20, maybe 30 zombies, moving in a tight group. The science of zombies is in its infancy. For so long, the only way anyone fought to deal with them was to destroy them. It isn't known why some clumped together like this, while others seem solitary, nor is it understood why some are capable of running and others struggle to walk. While the CGA is conducting research on the subject, working with zombies understandably presents all manners of difficulties, but not many people are comfortable living near to a laboratory where scores of undead monsters are being poked and prodded by people in white coats. There isn't even a single preferred scientific term for zombies, with the ambulatory deceased, instinctive anthropagus sufferers, and 
persistent functioning corpses all in common usage. However, I doubt Sophia was planning to start her own research into zombies. Like many people who have heard stories of horrific things but never seen them firsthand, she was curious. It doesn't take much to get a zombie's attention. The slightest sound can have them sense you're there. Some people think their sense of smell is just as important, but regardless, these zombies weren't interested in Sophia. They just kept shambling forwards. We followed them round a corner and we discovered what it was they were following. A slow moving ambulance was inching down the road. It siren off, but lights flashing, and the zombies seemed drawn to it. Sophia was growing bolder, getting closer and closer to the zombies. To my horror, she even waved her hand in front of a zombie's face. It didn't react. Sophia had turned to look at me, possibly annoyed at my stories of the dangers of these creatures, when the zombie bit down on her hand. Fortunately, it was Sophia's right hand, which had been encased and plastered by our medical team. She yanked her hand back and with the other raised her automatic pistol, shooting the offending zombie in the head. The plan did somewhat backfire in that the rest of the zombies finally noticed Sophia, who suddenly appreciated the danger she was in. In a few seconds, six zombies lay dead around her, and her gun was empty, and while her display of zombie killing was impressive, there were many, many more zombies. I rushed forward and grabbed her by the arm and pulled her away from the horn, just yelling at her to run. We both started running but didn't get far before we found more zombies blocking our way, and more heading towards us every second. Sophia loaded her weapon one-handed and was about to open fire when the loud high-pitched siren of an ambulance drowned out the zombies. The vehicle crashed through the crowd and spun round before us. The back doors flew open and we both dived inside, not even glancing at who was in there. As soon as we were inside, the ambulance sped away, the vehicle rocking dangerously and swerving across the road. The sound of impact made it clear we weren't free of the zombies yet. I looked at Sophia. Show me your hand, I demanded. I remember for perhaps the first time she looked afraid. There were deep teeth marks in the plaster, but it didn't look like the zombie had made it through to her skin. I breathed a sigh of relief. The medical team would probably put her in quarantine for a few days, but she would be fine. I'm so sorry, said the other person in the back of us. She was a young woman, no older than 20. She wore dark green overalls and had short, spiky red hair. She also had a shotgun, but as it was slung over her shoulder and not pointed at us, it didn't concern me too much. We didn't think anyone else would be out here, she said. Before I could answer, there was the sound of an especially loud impact and the ambulance spun round. I could feel it tipping, but was helpless to do anything. Then we hit something. Hard. I have been accused of being a metropolitan elitist, and I will accept the accusation as at least partly true. I am a city person. Always have been, and as long as at least one city survives, always will be. It is true that my programs tend to be about cities rather than rural areas. And while there are many, many beautiful rural areas filled with wonderful people, this is a podcast about the post-apocalypse, so we won't be talking much about them. Instead, we'll talk about the horrifying rural English places the train has visited. First was Old Grisson, a small, quaint village in the Cotswolds, and it appeared to be in excellent condition. In fact, it looked like the apocalypse hadn't affected the village at all. So we were instantly suspicious. When the locals who came to greet us were extremely welcoming and friendly, it confirmed our suspicions. I turned down the very tasty looking apple pie I had been offered without asking for and returned to the train. That night the locals surprised us and boarded the train and put us through a nightmare of torture, 
human sacrifice and cannibalism. Or they might have done had we not been on high alert and not fallen into a deep sleep from the drugged food and drink they had given us. There was a brief and very one-sided fight in which most of the locals were killed. The crude deception was not going to work on seasoned travellers like us. After all, this isn't our first rodeo. A few weeks later we came across Chirrington. This isolated village was deserted aside from the local school, where 20 or so children lived, as well as a single teacher. After a few tense hours spent with the teacher and the children, it became obvious that something wasn't right, and every time I asked about what had happened to everyone else, or how they managed to survive there, the teacher would quickly move the conversation onto another topic, usually saying how wonderful and well-behaved the children were. Incidentally, the children only ever referred to her as teacher, and when I asked her for her name, it seemed like she couldn't remember, but she laughed it off. As for the children, they were certainly peculiar, and in their own way were rather threatening. From the safety of hundreds of miles in this comfortable train, it seems ridiculous to be afraid of children, but I was afraid of them. They spoke quietly amongst themselves in small groups, and would stare at you for unnaturally long stretches of time. In an uncharacteristically brave moment, I slipped the teacher a note, offering her help. She looked aghast and quickly destroyed the note. I left, never knowing exactly what was going on, and hoped never to return. Finally, I shall discuss the village of Hayworth under Loden, a small place of little significance, but before the apocalypse had been perfectly pleasant. For centuries, the village had existed under the shadow of the rather ominous Hayworth Castle, but even before the apocalypse, it had been in ruins. These ruins were supposed to be quite impressive, so I decided to investigate with Colt coming along. Sophia had angrily attacked the aristocratic display of power and wealth of the castle, and of course it being a local stronghold for the status quo, and she had decided not to come. To be brief, we found the castle had been repaired and a nest of aristocratic vampires had taken up residence, controlling and terrorising the locals, killing them for their blood and just for their own amusement. However, we were treated as honoured guests, and I think the vampires were genuinely pleased to have a chance to entertain someone. I had quietly suggested to Cult that we go along with this madness until it was polite to leave, and then return with soldiers and a great deal of fire. Instead, Cult, knowing nothing of vampire slaying, decided to take them on single-handedly. Fortunately for him, his suicidal bravery stirred up the locals who turned against their tormentors and slaughtered them. So that's a brief glimpse into rural England in its own way, just as dangerous as the cities. Waking up in hospitals is a common feature of life when you're in the post-apocalypse, as well if you have an irresponsibly heavy drinking habit. I assumed on this occasion, though, it was more related to the former. I wasn't in pain, but I could feel the heavy fog of painkillers that was holding that pain at bay. I slowly took in my surroundings, and as hospital rooms go, it was very nice. Clean white sheets, well-maintained and comfortable furniture, plentiful drugs, everything spoke of a first-rate establishment. I took in the various pieces of equipment that I was attached to, as well as two drips that were running into my arm. The first seemed a typical IV, but the second, I couldn't tell what was in it. It looked like water that was tinted with a dark red substance, and whatever it was, it was only being given to me in very small amounts. I was about to call out for assistance when Sophia walked into the room. She was wearing the same green overalls the person in the ambulance had had on. She later explained her own clothes had been covered in blood, but she was otherwise fine. The doctors thought it best to send me in, for you to see a familiar face, she said. 
Zofia looked uneasy, almost furtive. I'm sorry, she blurted out. I should have listened to you about the zombies. I didn't mean to put you in danger. I explained to Zofia that, having known her for only a few months, she had saved my life more times than I cared to remember. So at worst, I could cross one of those times off the list. Sophia grabbed the chair and sat close to me. There is more you need to know, but I think the doctor should explain. And with that, she called for Dr. Paulino. A tall young man walked into the room. He wore blue and white scrubs and a white coat with short sleeves for infection control. He was all smiles and spoke in a friendly, reassuring manner. What he told me was rather shocking. I was in the hospital of Egresset Mendendo, the name being Latin in a joke I did not understand, not knowing Latin. A hospital which Dr. Paulino assured me was on the cutting edge. It had been founded by Dr. Yvonne Kaska and a group of like-minded medical professionals almost 20 years ago, and despite being in an apocalyptic area, had flourished. When I expressed scepticism, chiefly because I never heard of it, Dr. Paulino flashed his most reassuring and friendly smile and explained that the hospital's very existence was a secret, unknown to most. Before coming to England, Dr. Kaska had been based in Austria, although Canadian by birth, but as the apocalypse had unfolded, she had found herself trapped in Europe. The key event in Dr. Kaska's life was the siege of the Austrian town of Linz, nearly three years in which the town was surrounded by zombies. Daily, Dr. Kaska dealt with those who had been bitten by zombies, as well as a million other injuries, illnesses and conditions. And while appalled by the loss of life, some part of her brain was thinking carefully about all she saw. Dr. Kaska was fascinated by zombies and made extensive notes on what she discovered while in the town. When the siege was lifted and outside contact re-established, Dr. Kaska still wanted to learn more and she journeyed across Europe at great danger to herself, studying not just zombies but all manners of creatures and people who were, quote, not completely alive but certainly not dead, end quote. Vampires, ghouls, revenants and more, she studied their physiology, their psychology, their abilities, strengths and weaknesses, everything she could learn. Dr. Kaska's writing on the subject is still held up as seminal. When the central government authority came into existence, they saw the value of evidence-based research applied to all matters, and Dr. Kaska joined their scientific research division, where she excelled. Eventually, Dr. Kaska felt confident to publish her most divisive ideas. Of course, the undead were a terrible threat to mankind, but there was also a great deal to be gained from them. First, Dr. Kaska devised a spectrum of existence, with so-called normal life being at one end and death at the other, and with each of these different undead creatures having their own place on the spectrum. Dr. Kaska declared that it was wrong to simply exterminate some of these creatures, as they were very much like people, individuals with thoughts and personalities. Whereas zombies, for example, were mindless automatons, their level of consciousness, awareness and control beneath that all but the simplest creatures. The second controversial point was that Dr. Kaska stated that she believed we could use these undead creatures for the good of medical science. To take zombies, for instance, they were amazing creatures. They didn't breathe, they didn't need to eat. Dr. Kaska had long held that zombies ate humans out of a confused reflex action. It doesn't actually sustain them as food usually would. They could also be shot, set on fire, have major organs destroyed, and still they carried on. Vampires had remarkable healing properties. Revenants seemingly drained the life out of people to restore their own strength. To harness any of these powers would be remarkable, 
As Dr. Kaska had expected, there was a great deal of resistance to her work, and eventually she left continental Europe and came to England. From reading between the lines of what Dr. Paulino said, and some research I carried out later, it would seem that the CGA was in two minds about her work, seeing both the potential benefits and the problems, and heavily suggested that it might be best for her to continue her research outside of their control. After all, should her research go wrong, or the necessary specimens of undead she need escape, how much damage could they do in somewhere like England? So, does it work? I asked Dr. Paulino. He looked at Sophia and then at me. Mr. Oliver, you were seriously injured in the crash. Your life was in danger. We saved your life using the techniques developed by Dr. Casca and her colleagues. Dr. Polino took a few steps forward and took hold of the IV containing the mysterious red liquid. To put it simply, this is diluted zombie blood. Without even thinking about it, I reached out to rip the IV from my hand. Sophia stopped me and pushed me back onto the bed and urged me to listen to Dr. Polino. Mr. Oliver, had we not taken this course of action, I believe you would be dead. The doctors here are experts concerning the more traditional techniques and plan A is to use them whenever possible, but your injuries needed more than that. Dr. Polino rattled off the various organs, bones, nerves and more that had been damaged, and it definitely sounded like I should not have survived. How could you experiment on me like this? I demanded. But Dr. Polino made it clear. This was no experiment. The experiments ended years ago. To them, this was just conventional medicine. It worked. Then Dr. Polino made an audacious claim which I believe. Mr. Oliver, aside from the extremely elderly, no patient has ever died here. Dr. Paulino left the room, but assured me that if I needed anything, I should just press the call button and someone would see to me. I asked Sophia what had happened in the ambulance. She explained that the crowd of zombies had just gotten bigger and bigger, and trying to dodge them, the driver had lost control of the vehicle. We careened across the road before we hit an abandoned truck. We had been lucky to be so near the hospital as help arrived quickly. The hospital actively took part in removing zombies from the local community, in part to provide the blood they needed for treatment, but also to protect them. Ultimately, the hospital hoped there was something they could do for the zombies, not only stop their cannibalistic tendencies, but to improve their lot in life. Or, on death anyway. The people in the ambulance had been rounding up zombies to both carry out research and have access to their blood. After so many years of research, Dr. Kaskin knew how to attract zombies, how to keep them securely, why different zombies had different abilities, and she knew that the flashing lights of the ambulance would attract them. People inside who had been in the green overalls were part of the factotums, the non-medical personnel who did everything from security to maintenance. It was a lot to take in, and I still felt weak. The painkillers were fogging my mind, so I slept. I woke many hours later. Sophia was asleep on the chair near my bed, but there was someone else in the room. A tall, middle-aged woman with dark red hair. She wore brown-lined glasses and a white lab coat. Mr. Oliver, so glad you're awake. How are you feeling? she asked. I told her the truth. I told her that I was weak, but considering what had happened to me, I felt surprisingly well. I wasn't in shock to learn that this was Dr. Yvonne Kaska, and I began to grow worried as to why she was taking an interest in my care. Dr. Paulino had told me that most of her time was spent on research, and only became involved in the most difficult of cases. She alleviated my fears quickly as she explained that she wasn't here to help me, rather she wanted me to help them. 
Dr. Kaskin explained that after years of research and medical treatment, she felt it was time to end the isolation and go back to civilization. She was confident that a runaway success of the hospital would convince the CGA to support them. There was one issue though, and Dr. Kaska told me I would be able to help. Some of the staff here listen to your podcast, said Dr. Kaska. I detected a slight disapproving tone in her voice, and when she then said, I don't care for it, I think it's frivolous, so much work needs to be done, and what do you do? Talk about places you've been? I knew for sure she didn't like my work. I tried to argue that journalism was important, but she quickly shut down the idea that I was a journalist. She moved on, not wanting to get into a debate about the merits of my work. So she asked me, was it true that I had met Aramis Deschamps? Those who have listened to the previous seasons of the podcast will know that yes, I have met Aramis Deschamps. In fact, I have met him several times and I once spent two days in his company. Dr. Kaska smiled at this revelation and she asked if I would follow her. I was still weak and Dr. Kaska helped me from my bed. We left the room and walked down the corridor. We passed through several doors, but I couldn't help but notice that the last door had an armed factotum who opened and then locked the door after us. Dr. Kaska explained that this was their unfortunately rather makeshift secure unit. It had only ever held one patient. By this point I had worked out that the patient was Aramis Deschamps, but I acted surprised when I saw him for the sake of Dr. Kaska. Having not heard anything about Aramis for several years, I had presumed he was dead. After all, his job had been killing the undead. It isn't really fair to say it was his job. Nobody paid Deschamps, and most people would have rather he stopped doing what he was doing. Deschamps was what was commonly known as a burner, the reason being that the most reliable way of killing the undead was fire. But he also shot, stabbed, crushed, or did whatever it took to get the job done. There were numerous problems with how Deschamps went about his work, from the ridiculous collateral damage he caused to his less than rigorous approach he used for working out who was the undead. But the thing that really put people off was his weird, quasi-mystical, sacred fate religious fundamentalism he brought to the whole affair. He was incredibly annoying. Deschamps was the most famous burner in France and claimed an exceptionally high body count for someone who worked alone. Most burners worked in teams but not Deschamps, and everyone who met him could see why. It was a 50-50 split between unlikability and the man's messiah complex was probably going to get him and everyone near him killed. Deschamps looked a lot different to the last time I had seen him. He was clean for one thing, but it was undeniably him. How did he end up here, I asked. The hospital tried to keep a low profile, just visible enough for people who needed treatment to find out about it, but hidden to avoid the scandal and, well, to avoid people at the Deschamps. Inevitably, he had found out about it. He saw the hospital as an abomination, and Dr. Kaska as a new Lucifer. Deschamps set out to kill Dr. Kaska and her staff, burn down her hospital, and destroy all of their research. And, of course, kill everyone who had received Dr. Kaska's treatment. And he did this last part first. However, when Deschamps came to target the hospital itself, he was probably surprised by their tenacity. Deschamps' first attack was against one of the ambulances herding zombies, and he got himself shot and then attacked by those very same zombies. He nearly died, and would have if not for Dr. Kaska's treatment. In fact, so severe were his injuries, she personally took charge. In answer to my shocked expression, Dr. Kaska told me that she knew exactly who he was and what he had done, but they were still doctors and would never leave someone to die. Dr. Kaska had expected an irate Deschamps when he awoke, 
furious sublime rage about what had been done to him. But instead, Deschamps had, for lack of a better word, converted. He saw that this was a better way to be, that this was better than simply being alive. He no longer saw Dr. Casca as Lucifer, but as a great hero that was bringing humankind into a new era. Saving Deschamps' life looked at the Casca with two problems. The first being, what to do with him. He was a confessed murderer and extremist. Who knew what he would do? And second, well, he seemed to have lost his mind. And what the Casca really wanted to know, why she had asked for my help, had been to know, had he always been crazy, or had it been her treatment? Dr. Casca was 99.9% sure it was just how Deschamps was, but that 0.1% troubled her. She couldn't go back to the CGA with that small amount of doubt. I'm not really qualified to judge a person's sanity, I said. But that the Casca said that didn't matter. It can be useful to have people who know the patient and compare their current behaviour to how they used to be. And even though my time with him was brief, I was the best that the Casca was going to get. The Shams had refused all attempts to assess his mental health or for the Casca to carry out any tests on him, and she was far too ethical to force the matter. I walked into a large, sparsely furnished room. Deschamps sat at the table playing solitaire with a deck of cards, as a precaution he had been strapped into the chair. He looked up as I approached, and a broad but rather forced smile spread across his face. He recognised me. What followed was a frustrating discourse. I was unable to keep Deschamps' mind on one topic, and he often interrupted me with stern religious pronouncements. In fact, what he most wanted to talk about, after the founding of a new religion, was the train. He often refused to talk to me unless I told him more about it. Sum up his ravings and put them into some sort of coherent order, Deschamps believed himself to be the founder of his own religion. He had wholeheartedly embraced Dr. Casca's ideas about life being on a spectrum, but he thought that the ideal was to be at least a little dead. He proudly stated that his intention was to infect the whole world. Things got a little creepy when I asked him if he would infect me if he had the chance. At this he laughed and pointed to my IV and said, You're already one of us. He then lowered his voice and leaned in close to me. Let me show you something, he said, and rolled up his sleeve. Hesitantly, I leaned in and looked at the faint red circle on his arm. Zombie bite, he said with pride. I must be the first person to be bitten and not turn. While surviving this bite was impressive, he wouldn't be the first. There have been rare cases of people being bitten by zombies and not turning, and there was a lot of scepticism of these cases amongst the scientific community. Honestly, if it had been before I had learned of this hospital, I would have assumed he was lying. I thanked the Shams for his time and walked out of the room, relieved when the door was locked behind me. Before I could do anything, Dr. Casca had grabbed me by the arm and asked me my opinion of the Shams. Well, Dr. Casca, he seems delusional, paranoid, convinced of his own special destiny, I said. He's exactly how I remember him. Dr. Casca looked relieved for an instant, pleased that it wasn't her treatment that had driven him mad. Still, that left her the problem of what to do with Deschamps. Keeping him indefinitely in the hospital wasn't a practical solution. She turned to me. Thank you, Mr. Oliver. You have allayed my fears. I'm sure the CGA will be able to deal with Deschamps, and hopefully they will see the value of our work. Dr. Casca walked me back to my room. I was tired from the exertion and needed to rest. Seeing as how I talked a lot about Aramis Deschamps on this episode and dismissed him as both delusional and unhelpful, I thought I'd highlight some of the more useful and sane monster slayers out there 
who keep their collateral damage to an acceptable level. First, we have Lotta Zimmermann. This well-known monster slayer spends most of her time working in Northern Europe, and even though she's nearing 40, very old in the monster slaying business, still seems to be at the top of her game, and for Zimmerman, it is very much a business. She doesn't go through all this for nothing or some out-of-date notion of heroism. She expects to be paid. Originally, Zimmerman worked for the city of Kiel, dealing with various aquatic monsters, but when the central government authority took over the running of the city, insisted that as Zimmerman wanted to continue her work, she would have to work for them, she became a wandering monster slayer. While it thought it was worth taking the statistics from a monster slayer with a pinch of salt, hers are very impressive. Her website declares that her kills include a kraken, a temptation of sirens, a temptation being a collective noun of my own invention, and even something called a myriad dragon. I'm not even sure what that is, but from the pictures on her Instagram account, it is very big and has lots of teeth. Second, we have Vakil Malik, who is a very different type of monster state as a woman in that while she is very hands-on, going in with swords, guns and so on, Malik relies entirely on traps. It would be fair to call these traps elegant, perhaps even beautiful. They are complicated pieces of engineering, each tailor-made to the situation. Like Zimmerman, Malik charges for his services, and has even been begrudgingly employed by the CGA. Famously, Malik has never actually killed a monster himself, leaving that to the people who hire him, but his traps make the killing very easy. Vakil's most famous trap is probably the one he used against a nest of gorgons in Macedonia, where he designed a metal hood that snapped shut over their heads, thus rendering their most lethal aspect useless. To trap one gorgon like this would have been impressive. Malek trapped 17. Inevitably, when discussing monster slayers, you have to talk about the ones who arguably gave birth to the name of Burner, the Colorado Burners. Originally operating slowly in the territory of Colorado, and made up entirely of Coloradans, they are now an organisation that works across the continent of North America. They have neither the exquisite skill of Lutter Zimmerman, nor the engineering brilliance of Vakil Malik, but they are brave, enthusiastic, and pretty damn successful. As the name implies, their primary weapon is fire, and they use a lot of it. The wide open spaces of America seems to attract big monsters, and they are kept very busy. The Colorado Burners have a high fatality rate, and usually people only serve for several years before retiring to a less dangerous life. There are, however, exceptions. People like Jim Amarak, Katie Heisman, and Francisco Varez, all of whom served for well over a decade and were rightly held up as prime examples of bravery and fortitude. All three were killed in action. The Colorado Burners do not charge for their services, but actively seek sponsors, and over the years have been sponsored by such diverse businesses as Safety Mattresses, Killmore Chainsaws, and their current sponsor, The Wade Adler Company. I'm not sure what had woken me, but the first thing I saw was Sophia slamming a clip into her pistol. The Shams has escaped. She quickly filled me in. The Shams had attacked his guards and fled the hospital. Dr. Casco was convinced he was heading for the train, hoping he could use it to get back to civilization and start converting people. The hospital had a supply of weapons to defend themselves against the undead, and groups of armed factotums had already left the hospital hunting for the Shams, and Sophia was going to join them. Eager not to just be lying in bed and feeling very much refreshed after nearly 12 hours of sleep, I decided to get up. I made slow progress dragging my IVs behind me, and occasionally one of the remaining members of staff would stop and ask me if I needed anything, but otherwise I was free to explore the hospital. It was a perfect example of a modern hospital, 
clean, well-maintained, easy to find your way around. It wasn't austere or oppressive in either its architecture or decorating style. I passed a well-stocked library, a large games room, and a small cinema. If you had to spend time in a hospital, there were much worse places to be. With not being on the train, I was denied my recording equipment, but I still wanted to make notes on all of this for the podcast. Sophie had mentioned that what remained of my possessions were being kept in the patient inventory room, and I wandered there. Normally there was someone on the door, just to sign things in and out, but with nearly everyone gone, it was unattended. I let myself in and was confronted by rows and rows of shelves, with cardboard boxes sitting on them. They weren't in any particular order, but as there were only a handful of patients, it wasn't hard to find my own. Most of my blood-soaked clothes had been disposed of, but my jacket was still there and seemed to be salvageable, as well as my bag, which the contents of my pockets had been emptied into. I found my notebook in the bag and then returned the box to the shelf. It was then that I noticed the next box along. There was something different about it. All the other boxes were placed at the front of the box, where the name of the patient could be seen, was clearly visible. This one had been put in backwards. I grabbed the box and spun it round. It was the Shams box. I couldn't help but look in it. It was empty. My mind began to race. The Shams couldn't have got it earlier as the door was guarded, which meant he had to get it after everyone had left. I left the room and headed back towards a nearby nurse's station. A couple of nurses, a doctor, and some of the few remaining factotums were there. I was about to explain the situation when a very loud and alarming siren interrupted me. The factotums told me that it meant the undead were loose in the building. In the basement of the hospital was a holding area for the undead. Mostly zombies, but a wide selection of other undead creatures were also held there. This must have been a much rehearsed scenario as everyone sprang into action and knew exactly what they were doing. Initially, a nurse tried to take me back to my room, but when I argued, she relented. Once again, secure lockers were opened and weapons distributed to the appropriate staff. I could already hear the moans of the zombies, and much to a nearby nurse's chagrin, removed the IVs from my hand in case I needed to run. I hadn't exactly forgotten about the shams, but when my own survival was at stake, I stopped worrying about other matters. The hospital had been designed with this eventuality in mind, and there were many features to slow down zombies such as door handles that needed to be turned 360 degrees to open, access to other floors via ladders, which zombies cannot climb, and the basement itself was not accessible by stairs, but only by a secure lift or ladder, meaning that someone, undoubtedly the Sean, had intentionally brought the zombies out of the basement. The first zombie appeared and was brought down by a headshot from one of the factotums, but more followed. Fortunately, these zombies were exclusively of the, sh- of the slow, shambling type, Dr. Casca considered attempts to contain running zombies too dangerous. The corridor was soon filled by zombies, and the armed staff changed tactics and deployed the heavy machine guns. Some people think fully automatic weapons aren't much use against zombies. After all, what you need is a headshot. But nothing will stand such sustained fire. Yes, the zombies may not actually be dead, but if you've broken 90% of its bones, it won't be chasing you. When the guns stopped firing, the zombies were a slowly writhing mass of broken bodies but there were more throughout the building. Lots more. After surviving this initial onslaught, I was able to think about the Shams again. What did he want? If he wasn't trying to simply escape the hospital, what was it? Dr. Casca. He wanted. No, needed her for his plans. Or at least her research. I convinced some of the factotums of the danger Dr. Casca was in, and they took me to her office. The door to her office was ajar, which seemed anonymous. I walked in and saw the office had been ransacked. 
filing cabinet smashed open, an empty space on a desk where a computer should be, and there was Dr. Casca, slumped in the corner, her hands pressed against a wound on her stomach. Fortunately, the timely arrival of trained medical professionals spared the doctor from my own clumsy attempts at first aid. There were more gunshots from down the corridor, and I nervously went to investigate. The Shams had been trapped. He had ran down the corridor and been followed by armed factorians. He had hit one of the security doors, and through that was a horde of the undead. A crowd had gathered round him, and I called out to him. Just give up, I said. There's no way out. The Shams looked back at me and smiled. He turned the handle and flung the door open and the zombies surged forward. We ran. All of us. Yes, some of those were weapons fired for a few seconds, but soon realised that the only option was retreat. I looked back over my shoulder at the zombies to see how far away they were when someone collided with me. I fell against the wall and stumbled. Luckily, someone grabbed me and hauled me backwards. A nurse had pulled me into Dr. Casca's office and slammed the door shut. The others began barricading it, pushing every stick of furniture against the door. For the next three hours, we waited in Dr. Casca's office. The doctor and two nurses worked on keeping Dr. Casca alive, while the rest of us just tried to stay quiet. Eventually, the sound of zombies moaning and beating on the door was drowned out by gunfire. I had thought, or maybe just hoped, it was a matter of time before the search parties returned and led the fight against the zombies, and it turned out I was right. We moved the barricades and opened the door. Zofia was there with some of the factorians, and even while some of the sections of the hospital were still being taken back from the zombies, Dr. Casca was rushing the surgery. I was exhausted and went back to my room. I still needed to recover from my own injuries, but after a couple of days, I felt that most of my strength was back, and I went to see Dr. Casca. I had been told that she was recovering well, so I was surprised by her pale skin and weak appearance. She had told me she was worried about the Shams. Most of the hospital staff believed he had died when he opened the doors to the zombies, but Dr. Casca wasn't sure. It was true that his body had never been recovered, but I argued that surely nobody could have survived. To have that many zombies just envelop you, you would have been torn apart. I tried to reassure Dr. Casca that it was only natural to have these kind of thoughts. After all, the Shams had tried to murder her. She shook her head. He wasn't trying to kill me. He wanted me to be like him. She gestured to her own IV and the pale red liquid it contained. He was also convinced that the zombies wouldn't hurt him, she said. That he was too much like one of them. I made awkward conversation with Dr. Casca for a little while before leaving and returning to my room. As Dr. Polino said I was strong enough to leave, I packed up my things and with Sophia headed back to the train. We'll leave it there for this week, with the terrible possibility that the Shams had escaped with plans to change the rest of the world into the undead. At the end of the line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostAPOD Podcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. Today's advice is when bored from crossing a bridge or accessing a building by somebody who insists on you solving a riddle, that person is probably not working there in any official capacity. Few tolls or entry fees work like that. It's not an effective business model. Hello, listeners. That's the end of season one. I've very much enjoyed working on this season and hope to have season two out soon. Keep following us on Twitter to find out what's happening with the podcast. Thanks again.